0: Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. If an author writes the words red lead, is she directing a person named red to lead a group of people? Or is she referring to a lead-based substance that is colored red, as in red lead? If she is speaking and we cannot see the spelling of her words, is she informing her audience that she read a book about leadership? Or was it an essay about lead poisoning in Flint, Michigan's water supply? You get the point. Context is paramount for understanding. When Jesus says you are the salt of the earth and then talks about a loss of flavor, what does he mean? Actual salt cannot lose its flavor. But according to Jesus, his followers are definitely at risk of losing their flavor. If we can lose our saltiness, that means that whatever made us the salt of the earth was put into us. How are we to discern what this thing is and how it works? How are we to understand the phrase, you are the salt of the earth? The answer is context. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 13 to 14. This week's episode is presented in honor of Father Paul's 75th birthday. May God grant him many years. You're listening to the Bible as Literature.
1: This is Father Mark Bulos, And this is Dr. Richard Benton.
0: And you are listening to episode 246 of the Bible as Literature podcast. We are coming off of the Beatitudes and moving into this beautiful section where we hear passages and quotes that are popular among Christians and quoted often
1: and everywhere. This is the section of the Bible that's proof-texted the most, which means people take one verse here, one verse there, and they memorize that outside of the context. And as we usually do, we're going to take this as a single narrative from beginning to end in its entirety in order to see the flow. We want to show the entire context. And there was a great example from a previous episode that supports
0: your point, Richard, a point that you try to make frequently to always demonstrate the narrative continuity of these various pericopes. You can't take them on their own, even though they can be picked out as a separate unit. The example that I want to bring to the surface again, just as a reminder this week, is this question of seeing God. When people take this passage, they go in all different directions about what it means to see God. But if you're hearing it within the context of Matthew, and of course, we know the end of the story, so we are cheating. But the fact is, when Matthew contextualizes this blessing in chapter 25, he uses the needy neighbor as the litmus test for whether or not you can see God. So it is about clarity of mind. I mean, heart being the seat of reason. It's about clarity of your thoughts, that your mind is organized by your obedience to the instruction. That's just one example. It was such a great one. I wanted to bring it up again this week as a reminder. But as we go into this next section, try not to hear them as wise sayings by Jesus. That's typically how people abuse the Sermon on the Mount. You have to hear it as this lengthy, presentation, which is the continuation of the packaging of the Torah and the packaging of Paul's teaching in the Beatitudes. We're going to continue to see what that means, what our accountability is to these blessings,
1: and how it plays out in the story. It's like with Martin Luther King's speech, I have a dream. Oftentimes you'll see on a TV screen, I have a dream, dot, dot, dot. And people take that to mean whatever they want it to mean, whatever they remember or whatever they feel like or whatever. But if you don't understand it in the context of the entire speech, it's not as meaningful. And it's even more meaningful when you look at that quote and the speech in the context of all of Martin Luther King's works. Understanding it within the entire body is important. I mean, anyone on LSD can claim that they saw God. But what did they actually see? We shrug our shoulders. We don't know what they actually saw. But when Jesus talks about seeing God, he's very specific about what he's talking about because it's in the context of the Beatitudes, in the context of the book of Matthew, in the context of the Bible. Understanding that whole context gives it meaning as opposed to us instilling it and forcing upon it whatever meaning we feel like forcing on it. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be
0: made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Now, the first thing to note with verse 13 is the basis upon which Christ makes the claim that you have any flavor at all. And the answer is, requires that one look only back a couple of verses. He just flavored you with the blessing of instruction. Again, the Beatitudes encapsulate, and we showed from the terminology, they encapsulate Paul's letters. They're very closely tied to the terminology of Galatians, but in that way, they also encapsulate the entire teaching of the scroll of the Old Testament, of the law of Moses, the Pentateuch. So now you've received that scroll. You've received that blessing in the three sets of three. So you have flavor. Now the question is, what are you going to do? We know that if you make peace and you teach and you do what the commandments say, that you will potentially be put in harm's way. But what happens if you don't? What happens if you lose that flavor? And of course, the implication, and this is really important because again, and I mentioned this on Sunday when I was preaching at St. Elizabeth, we tend to hear these texts as Americans living in our century, and that's a disaster. If you want to hear this text, you have to acquire the mindset of a slave in a Roman household. A slave in a Roman household hearing this message would never assume that MLK's dream is about their personal dream for what they want to do with their life, as opposed to his concern for the common good. And a slave in a Roman household would never hear verse 13 as applause for them that they're special and they have a special unique flavor, which is how I hear people proof texting this all the time. No, you have a flavor because Christ just put that flavor in you. He seasoned you with the blessings you just
1: received. So don't lose that flavor. I love that it follows on this last group of three, which is precisely if you do have the teaching, then the evidence of that is that you're being persecuted for the sake of righteousness. You're doing what is righteous and are persecuted as a result. Therefore, you should be exceedingly glad. So the flavor of this salt of the gospel is is precisely this suffering that the one who follows the teaching goes through. So you can tell what's salty and what isn't by seeing if it tastes salty, and the flavor of this is this suffering and is the rejection by the world. So it's important that verse 13 follow verse 12. If verse 13 were somewhere else, then it would not have the flavor of the suffering that happens when one rejoices in the righteousness of of the Torah, of the teaching that's given to them. And again, Richard, it's ominous because he's
0: saying, I made you have this flavor. I made you salty. I made you flavorful. If you lose that, meaning if you don't adhere to the blessings you just received, the blessings I just put in you, then you're useless and I'll throw you away. Listen to the phraseology. Even in English, it's hard to hear. If salt has become tasteless, it can't be made salty again. And he says, quote, It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. It's a threat, an ominous, menacing threat, that if you don't take accountability for the
1: blessings that you have been afforded, there's a price to pay. The listener has to be careful. The time when you have to worry is when you aren't showing evidence of this blessing. And the evidence of this blessing is the persecution. So in our world, everyone wants to be outraged and worried and concerned that they're being persecuted. Where Jesus is saying, if you're not being persecuted, then you have something to worry about. We have to take Jesus's complete reversal of fortunes to heart, because that's the essence of what he's teaching. You are the light of the world. A city set on
0: a hill cannot be hidden. Again, you are the light of the world does not mean that you are the light in a personal way. You are a light the way a lamp carries a light. There's this beautiful, beautiful hymn for theophany in our tradition that plays on the interaction between John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus Christ in the wilderness when the Lord comes to be baptized And in the poetry of the hymn, John the Baptist exclaims, how can the lamp illumine the light? So the hymnographer understood correctly scripture that to say that you are the light of the world is to say, in effect, you are a lamp that has been lit and you have to carry that light forward. You personally are not the light. Now, if you're hearing it contextually, you would never make that mistake. But if you proof text, you're suddenly going to have campfire songs with 13 and 14 year olds sitting around with someone playing guitar, talking about how they're gonna let their light shine. And they think it means their special, unique value to the universe. I'm very proud of my son. His teacher asked him a question for his class that was a written test. And one of the questions was, what's special about you? And his reply was, I don't believe in egoism. (laughs) That's very special. (laughs) Exactly. Now, why does my son talk that way? Not because, like you and I, he doesn't have an ego or fall in the trap of thinking he's special. It's just not his premise. The premise is invalid. How can you say that everyone is special? It doesn't make
1: sense. The specialness is conditional here. You are not born special. It's not because you have a soul that you're special or because you have a certain twinkle in your eye that you're special. You're special if you have taken on the gospel and you allow it to do its work in you. The fruit of that is your suffering and your persecution. So again, only be worried if you're not suffering. Only be worried if you're not being persecuted. If you're not being persecuted, then you have trouble. I remember talking one time to a priest in Morocco, and he was worried about the Muslims. This was in the 90s, and he was going on with this. And I said, with all due respect, Father, Paul seems to have thrived when Christians were being persecuted. He seemed to have made it a big point. So When we're so concerned about our suffering and our teaching, our religion being persecuted, I was just reading an article. The United States now has a diplomat at large for religious suffering in the world. And what's significant is the person who's in charge declares himself to be an evangelical Christian with the Bible that this, I assume, evangelical would profess. The suffering
0: is part of it. Which is 1 Corinthians. I think you're hitting on themes from 1 Corinthians that are equally embedded in the terminology of Matthew. We haven't gone through it, but it's very clear the way that the text is handling suffering. I want to point something else out about verse 14, Richard. It talks about the fact that a city that's on a hill can't be hid. We're always talking about a city you can't find on a map. And if Christ is saying, you are a light, and then talking about a city that can't be hid, I think the implication is that the teaching is creating this community that carries this light. The community is not the light. The light abides with or without you. The light of his instruction. No one can contain it. No one can stop it. You can't build a wall to control it. The proposition of your conditional relationship with that light, as you described it, Rich, is that you submit to its instruction and make yourself useful for sharing that light or not. And if you're not useful, you're out. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father.
1: You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening.